Well, amen. Praise be to God that we can go to Christ and trade our filthy rags for his righteousness. It's the greatest news in the world. That's why we're here today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help as we're going to look to his word now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be regarded as holy because you are holy and you're righteous and good and you're merciful and gracious and you show steadfast love to sinners like us and you are perfectly righteous in the way that you have saved us because of what your son has accomplished in our place. We thank you for Christ. And we do pray that as we look to your word now, that you would come, that you would empower everything that we are about to do by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that our faith in Christ would be strengthened as we behold him from the word. We pray that you would even impart faith in Christ to those who might not yet trust him as they behold him from your word. God, be kind to us. Come and do the work that only you can. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know that it would be a surprise to anybody in the room who has spent much time reading uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to make the statement that Jesus faced a lot of opposition during his earthly ministry. That three years of life, that three-year span, was anything but kind of mundane and easy. It was anything but cruise control. There was often opposition at every turn. Christ faced opposition from a number of different groups of people, a number of different parties. He really wasn't popular with many people. He had fanfare around him, that's true. But when it came to the truth that he would speak, the message that he would herald, it often offended people and turned them away. We're going to consider some of that opposition today, even from Mark's gospel, and how Jesus responds to the opposition. And as we look at Christ and his response to opposition, there will be much to learn about redemption. There will be much to learn for us, even about redemptive history, in terms of how God has dealt with a stiff-necked, sinful people. And there is much to learn in all of that about ourselves. And so we pray that the Lord would minister to us so that we might see all of those things. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do open them up to Mark's gospel. We will be spending time today in chapters 11 and 12 of the gospel of Mark. We'll be beginning in Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, and we will be making our way all the way through chapter 12 and verse 27. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat that at all. We will have the words to the text up on the screen there for you to follow along with us. And we look forward to what the Lord would teach us today from his perfect and inspired word. Before we go any further, I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we'll consider it together. This is the word of God, beginning in Mark 11 and verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. 
Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. 
Thanks be to God for his word. So there are three interchanges in this passage that we've looked at together. In those three interchanges, we see different opponents of Jesus either challenge his authority or attempt to trap him in what he says, or even to back him into a corner theologically. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at those three interchanges, those three different conversations, one at a time, and then to conclude our time, we will reflect together on some of the things that are pretty obvious about God and the way he works and even about ourselves and how we might even have peace before the Lord. So that's the plan for our time together today. The first interchange that we will consider is the one between the chief priests, scribes, and elders and Jesus. So that's chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12 and verse 12. So you can put your eyes on the text beginning in verse 27 of chapter 11. Keep in mind, we see here that Jesus is back in Jerusalem and he's back in the temple. Keep in mind what has just happened, right? A day, maybe two days prior, Jesus had quite literally turned the temple inside out. He'd come in and he had cleaned house. He had sent away all the money changers and everybody doing commerce. It had created quite a stir, no doubt. Keep in mind as well that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders held positions of great authority in the temple and in Jewish life in general. So this is a pretty serious collision of worlds here that's going on in verses 27 and following. All right, so back to the text, verse 27. We see that Jesus again in Jerusalem. He was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come up to him. And they say to him, verse 28, they challenge him. By what authority are you doing these things? That is, like wrecking shop in the temple. And by what authority... Do you do them? By whose authority? Who gave you authority to act this way and do these things? Now, of course, we know, Mark has let us know already in his gospel that it is God the Father who had given Jesus this authority. And we also know that it is by the Father's authority that Jesus does these things. The interchange goes on, though. Jesus is going to pivot this whole thing back on them. I, I say this often, but when I read the Gospels and we spend time looking at the Gospels together here on Sunday morning, I am constantly, I trust you are too, struck by how brilliant Jesus is in interchanges like this. He absolutely does this all the time. I mean, turns the table, pivots the thing, and hinges it right back upon the person who's interrogating him and kind of just ends the conversation. But here we go. He turns it around on them and he says, I'm going to ask you a question. You come in and you ask me these big questions, like, by what authority do I do the things that I'm doing? Well, let me ask you a question. Answer me and I'll tell you. Here's the deal. He asks them, verse 30, was the baptism of John, and by John he means John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, was it in God's name or was it in man's strength? God's idea or man's idea? John's baptism. Tell me what you make of it. In verses 31 and 32, we see that the chief priests, scribes, and elders deliberate amongst themselves. That's quite clear in the way that they dialogue that they did not believe that John's baptism was from heaven. They didn't care for John either, right? Just as Israel had not really cared for any of the legitimate prophets through history. I and mean, Jesus is going to point that out in just a minute in a parable he's going to tell. 
So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders had not cared for John's ministry, and they certainly had not seen his baptism as being a legitimate one with heavenly authority. But they have a dilemma on their hands, and we're given insight into that dilemma in verses 31 and 32. They say amongst themselves, well, if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus is going to then say, well, why did you not believe him? Because they had not honored what John had said. Because, fellas, obviously, if it's from heaven, you should honor it. You should obey it. You should heed it. And they had not. But then verse 32, but shall we say from man, which is what they really think, because they're afraid of the people. Jesus has trapped them. Because the people thought John was a prophet. And so if they said, well, his baptism is from man, it would not have been a popular statement to make. So they say to Jesus in verse 33, we don't know. And Jesus responds that then he will not tell them by what authority he does what he does, but he's going on immediately to tell a parable. Verse 1 of chapter 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now remember what parables do. They describe things as they really are. They're not, again, so much moral lessons for us as they are a vivid word picture of reality. Like, here is, like, cut through the mess and the nonsense, the facade and all that other stuff. Here's what's really going on. That's what the parables do. Jesus uses them to point out, in this case, what's really happening in Israel and what has been happening in Israel for centuries. So he goes on to this parable, verse 1. He talks about a man planting a vineyard, and he sets protection around it and outfits it appropriately. He then is going to send, in verse 2, when the season comes for fruit to be born, he's going to send a servant to gather some of that fruit. But as we see this imagery of a man planting a vineyard and outfitting it as it needs to be outfitted and leasing it to tenants, this is describing God, his kingdom, and his people Israel. Israel is often referred to as a vineyard, metaphorically, in the Old Testament. Think Isaiah chapter 5, maybe most notably. So the man repeatedly in verses 2 and following is going to send servants to the tenants. And those servants are not received well. Some of them are even killed. This is representative of the fact that God had repeatedly sent prophets to Israel. Those prophets, the legitimate ones. Now the false prophets were always popular. The prophets who said things that the people liked were always popular. But the legitimate prophets were rarely, if ever, popular. Some of them were treated terribly. Some of them were killed. Finally, verse 6, we see that the man has one other person that he's going to send. The man decides to send his beloved son. But the tenants, out of hatred and envy, kill the son as well. We see that transpire in verses 7 and 8. So then Jesus asks in verse 9, what will the man do? Because clearly, as Jesus is talking about the son whom the man sent into the vineyard, he is referencing himself. That God sent his son 
to his people and his people received him not. They hated him. They rejected him. They killed him. So what's the man going to do? He answers the question. Second part of verse 9. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Just as God would come in judgment on his people Israel and the kingdom of God would go to Christ's apostles and to the nations. Not to the complete exclusion of Israel, obviously, because there have been Jews even throughout the New Covenant era who have professed faith in Christ. And there's even reason to think from Scripture, most notably Romans 11, that there will be more Jews in the future continuing to turn to Christ. But largely, God would give his kingdom to Christ's apostles and then to the nations, the Gentiles. So in verses 10 and 11, Jesus cites a psalm, Psalm 118. Have you not read this, he asks. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you not read this? These verses from the Psalms are talking about Him, about Christ. They're talking about Messiah. They're talking about the victory and the exaltation that God would give His Christ. Those who are building God's house, so the workers in God's kingdom, and that would absolutely include those who are in charge in the temple. Those who are building God's house have rejected the cornerstone that God gave for the building of that house. And Jesus is that cornerstone. The house of God would be built on the cornerstone of Christ. And many in the room may, or I don't know how many are familiar with building and how this would have been done, but the cornerstone would have been the first and greatest stone laid upon which much weight would be borne. It's an essential building block, foundational piece. You don't have a building without the cornerstone. You don't have God's kingdom without Christ. But the builders of God's house have rejected God's cornerstone, His beloved Son. And all of this, the plan of God to build His house and His kingdom upon the cornerstone of Christ is most certainly the Lord's doing. And it is indeed marvelous. Christ asked them, have you not read this? Do you not understand this? The chief priests and the scribes are not fools. They're not idiots, right? They're educated people. We see this in verse 12. They seek to arrest him, but they again, they fear the people. They can't arrest him then. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They understand what he's doing. It's not as though, so sometimes the parables that Jesus tells, it's very obvious that people on the outside don't understand what he's saying. But in this case, it's pretty clear that his target audience, chief priests, scribes, elders, they understand that he's talking about them. So it wasn't an intellectual problem. They leave Jesus, we see, at the very end of verse 12, and then they go away. And they're about to send reinforcements. So this brings us to the second interchange that we will consider. This is the interchange between the Pharisees and the Herodians and Jesus. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12. So you see that in verse 13, 
the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, that's who they are. And they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus, to try and trap Jesus in his talk. Now, just a couple of notes. Pharisees, remember, were experts on the law. They lived a very disciplined life and taught their disciples to do the same. Some have said this, and I think it's fair. I mean, they were in one sense like the fundamentalists of their day. It's a very rigid kind of understanding. But then we also have the Herodians. It's quite an odd couple here. You have the fundamentalists over here and the Pharisees, but then you have the Herodians who were people who had made political alliances with the Herods, and the Herods, of course, had made alliances with Rome. So as we considered back in chapter 3, for the Pharisees to make alliances with the Herods to go after Christ is a great irony that these very disciplined, conservative experts of the law would lock arms with political allies of Rome, this pagan nation, this pagan empire that had subdued and conquered Israel. It's very interesting. But they're united because of their hatred of Christ. They want to see him undone, and so here we go. Verse 13, again, just it makes it very plain. Mark lets us know without a shadow of a doubt what's going on. The chief priests, scribes, and elders, they have sinister motivations. They're sending the Pharisees and the Herodians to try to, to trap Jesus. It's not a legitimate kind of question and conversation that's going to be had. And then in verse 14, they arrive on the scene, the Pharisees and the Herodians do, and they begin to talk to Jesus, and the flattery is over the top. But it's, sugar, it's saccharine sweet, man. You know, it's like make your teeth hurt kind of thing. They flatter Christ. It's all a farce. They're blowing a bunch of smoke by saying things like this. Teacher, we know that you're true. We know that you don't care about anybody's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Flattery. Then the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Caesar, of course, is the ruler, the emperor of Rome, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's a very crafty question. It's a thought-out question. And these people asking this question are not idiots. They know what they're doing. Because if Jesus says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar... It would communicate that he too, perhaps, had sided with a foreign pagan government over and against God's own people. And he could be attacked on the basis of that, accused. But on the flip side, if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be depicted as a rebel and a zealot and some kind of political revolutionary. So he's between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to do? How is he going to answer this? In verses 15 and following, he responds. Again, just marvel at your Savior in the ways that he handles these kinds of situations. He knows their hypocrisy, right? He knows what's in man. He's not fooled by any of this. Knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why put me to the test? But then he tells them, bring me a denarius, a coin, right? A Roman coin. Let me look at it. 
Then in verse 16, they bring him one. He looks at the coin and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? They answer, well, it's Caesar's likeness and inscription on the coin. And then his response in verse 17 is flat out brilliant. He says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give Caesar what's his. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, those words in verse 17 are not like Christ's lecture on God and government. Okay, like we shouldn't turn it into that. Sometimes people sort of do. You know, like this is a, a treatise on God and politics or something. It's not that. But Jesus does, however, in a sentence, in a sentence, he upholds the ultimate authority of God and his law alongside the subordinate instituted by God authority of a human government. He does that in a sentence, upholds God's law and God's sovereign reign over all things and then the legitimate, subordinate, instituted by God authority of a human government. The point of all of this, though, is the end of verse 17. That even Christ's opponents who hate him and who want to trap him marvel at him. They marvel at his wisdom. They marvel at his answer. Which brings us now to the third interchange. And this is the interchange between the Sadducees and Jesus. And this is verses 18 through 27 of Mark 12. The Sadducees here in this dialogue are going to attempt to pin Jesus in a corner theologically. And if the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of their day, the Sadducees could perhaps be seen as the liberal theologians of their day. They're quite liberal theologically. They're denying basic truth claims, like basic, straightforward teaching of the word of God like the resurrection. So Jesus is running the full gamut here in terms of whom he's dealing with. The Sadducees come to Jesus in verse 18. You can put your eyes there. We're told by Mark that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, just to be very clear. We're told something of their theology, and they come and they ask Jesus a question, a pretty long one. It takes five verses to get it out. They begin in verse 19. They say, teacher, here's what Moses wrote for us. They're referencing Deuteronomy 25. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the brother would then take that woman as his wife and then have children with her and raise up offspring. This is kind of that kinsman stuff that we read about in Deuteronomy 25. So then, again, they're trying to paint this crazy hypothetical situation to try to trap Jesus and pin him in a corner. So they say, okay, that's what Moses said. So let me throw this at you, Jesus, and see what you do with this. There were seven brothers. One took a woman to be his wife, and when he died, he had no children with her. So then the second brother took her and married her, but then he died, and they hadn't had any children. And the third one took the woman and married her, but then he died, and they had no kids, and so on and so on and so on, until finally all seven brothers have married this same woman. None of them have had children with her, and then finally then at that point, the woman dies. Okay, Jesus, 
in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Because she's been married to all seven of them. She didn't have kids with any of them. So how is this going to work? And then Jesus responds to them, beginning in verse 24. His basic answer is that the Sadducees are very wrong about this. And they're wrong because they don't know the scriptures. They don't know the word of God, nor do they know the power of God. So they don't know God's word and they don't know the God who inspired the word, who is the powerful, almighty king of the universe. They don't know him. That's the problem from Christ's perspective. So he points out, verse 25, that there's not going to be marriage in the new heavens and the new earth like there is now. This age, as we know it, will have come to an end. Now, brief aside, what exactly the new heavens and the new earth will be like, we don't know. What exactly our relationships with one another will be, we don't know in full detail. God has not told us. But we do know that whatever it is will be joy and love and peace and pleasure forevermore. It's going to be all good. Now, back to verse 26. Jesus points to the account of Moses and the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3. He says, as far as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus does this to demonstrate. He refers to this text to demonstrate that God is the God of people who are living, that is, people who are united to him in an eternal covenant of grace who will live forever after this earthly life is through. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long since died when God says this to Moses. They've been dead a long time, yet they live. That's his point. It's pretty interesting to me. I was saying this to Mackenzie the other day, we were just having a conversation about the passage. And uh, I said, you know, it's funny to me how Jesus does the exact opposite of like a proof text to argue for the fact that the resurrection is real. Like he doesn't use our MO. So we usually, we like try to proof text stuff, take verses in isolation. He just goes to a grand passage in the Old Testament and just says, you realize that's what God said there, that he's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's God of the living, not of the dead. It's just kind of like Jesus is taking this grand truth, like a broad stroke truth of the Bible to argue for the legitimacy of the resurrection rather than taking some obscure verse and building a theology on it. Just an observation. But Jesus now, in the course of just these few verses relatively that we have considered today in these three interchanges, he has refuted and baffled some pretty impressive people. He has refuted and silenced the mouths of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He has refuted and silenced the Pharisees and the Herodians to the point that they were marveling at him. And then even with the Sadducees, he has shut them down and made it quite clear that their issue is a very fundamental one, that they do not know God's truth nor God himself. Which brings us now to our time where I want us to reflect together 
on everything that we've considered today. And this reflection has like several pieces to it. I'm not going to really outline those. We don't need to. But if I had to put a heading on this, this is a reflection on seeing ourselves in these passages where we should see ourselves. Because I think we're all prone to reading passages like these and we see ourselves in the wrong places. Like we, we get really worked up and indignant toward the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We get worked up and indignant toward the Pharisees and the Herodians. We're worked up and we're indignant about the Sadducees. We're not them from our perspective. There's an old Anglican prayer that's really good. Very short. We pray it here sometimes before we look to the book. Before sermons, they would pray, Our Father, show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. For your son's sake, amen. It's a good prayer. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. Part of the problem we have is that we don't see ourselves very accurately in many of the accounts of Scripture. We tend to see ourselves in the protagonist characters, protagonistic characters perhaps, not in the antagonistic ones. So we're just going to look at this and think today about God, about us, and about our Savior and how it is that we would ever be reconciled to God and have peace before Him. We should see ourselves in the chief priests and scribes and elders. We should see ourselves in the Pharisees and in the Herodians. And we should see ourselves in the Sadducees in these passages. Like the chief priests, scribes, and elders and God's people through history, we are by nature haters of God. We are just like the people who murdered God's son. Had we been there, we would have done the same. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians, we try to trap God in what he has said. My goodness, how often does that happen? Like the Sadducees, we don't believe God's word and we try to pin him in a corner with outlandish, hypothetical, philosophical conjecture. Happens all the time. Think about the history of God's people too. Most pointedly, as Jesus tells this parable of the tenants, and he's describing how Israel had responded to God's prophets through the centuries. Israel had failed and grumbled and disbelieved over and over again. Theirs is not a history of obedience and success, but of disobedience and failure. The Old Testament is full of stories about drunks and liars and cheats and cowards and murderers and adulterers. And here's the thing. The Bible is a story about a God who loved a people like that. So much so that he sent his son to live and bleed and die and rise again to save them. This is how we should read our Bible. So what does this mean for us regarding like our character and our virtue? 
means a number of things. We, even in the church, and now we are born again, we have God's spirit, and God's spirit is doing transforming work in our lives. And at the same time, we are still fallen. We still battle indwelling sin. We are still in, not covenantally speaking, but we are still under the curse of Adam. We battle our own corruption all the time. Okay, so we tend to think very well of ourselves. Even in the church, we do. Self-righteousness is as natural for us as breathing. When things are going well from our perspective, we're all prone to look around and think that we're more sincere than other people. That we're more devoted than other people. That our theology is better than other people's theology. That we're ascending the ladder of virtue much more quickly than other people. That we've done more good works than other people. I could go on and on and on. I know I do this. I trust you do too. But here's the reality. We must never lose sight of the fact that we are poor, needy, blind, naked, and corrupt. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus said that in Mark 7. So our character, while changing, being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, we must never be deceived into thinking that our character is just awesome and shining. A dear friend and, a, and, and mentor to me used to tell a story about a family member who didn't want anything to do with church because the church was, from her perspective, a pit of vipers. To which he would say, I agree with you. Slither on in and join us anytime. What's he saying? What's he communicating in that? You see, friends, the, the difference between the church and the world is not that the world is a bunch of vipers and the church is not. It's that in the church, we know that we're vipers. That's the difference. Or as another friend and author put it, if you think Sodom and Gomorrah were bad, they ain't nothing compared to a group of Christians who think they're less sinful than the world. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, what's, what's the point? It's that we are all debtors to mercy. We are debtors to mercy. We are all, like metaphorically speaking, we are all on our faces in blood-soaked dirt at the foot of Christ's cross. And what we need to concern ourselves with is like heart-wrenching, sin-confessing repentance. My goodness, what else could we do before our Christ who bled and died to save us? It's insane to think that we would go around parading our own righteousness and our own merit. 
Okay. So basically, in other words, praise God and be encouraged by the ways that his spirit is transforming you and do not think highly of yourself. But then, what does this mean with respect to our peace before God? Like if we're seeing ourselves in scripture where we should, in the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, in the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees, we've thought about what that means for our character, but what about our peace before God? How could we ever have it if our character is as bad as we've said? It's quite clear that our peace before God has to come from God. Our peace before God has to be found in God or it will not be found. If God were not merciful, brothers and sisters, if God were not gracious, we could never have peace. It would be impossible. But he is merciful and gracious. That's what he says about himself. When he describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, what does he say? He says, when he passes by Moses, this glorious moment, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And also who will by no means clear the guilty. It's who he is. God is merciful and gracious. And here's the thing. He has revealed his mercy and his grace most pointedly, most vividly, most awesomely, in the person and work of His beloved Son. You want to see the mercy and the grace of God, look no further than Christ. Think about the witness of the Scripture, about what God requires, and then let's think together about what Jesus has done. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, The soul who sins shall die. It's pretty straightforward. The soul who sins shall die. We deserve death. Everybody sins. But the Son of God took on flesh and died. Not for his own sin, but for whose sin? For us. He died in our place. We were crucified. This is Galatians 2. We were crucified with him. And in him we died to the law. And so, in Christ, we have been set free. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, all things written in the book of the law and do them. Leviticus 18, 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You're cursed if you don't do everything written in the book of the law. And you are to keep my law. And if you do, you'll live. So suffice it to say that we're cursed because we haven't kept all of the law. 
And because we have not kept the law, suffice it to say that we will not live. But at the right time, Christ was born of woman under the law to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4. He fulfilled the law and fulfilled all righteousness for us. Matthew 5, 17. Matthew 3, 15. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is one of the greatest sermons ever preached, and it is full of law. When Christ tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When he was baptized, Matthew 3, he tells John that it's appropriate that he would be baptized so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He didn't need it. He did it for you and me. And in Christ, we have been counted righteous, Romans 5, Isaiah 53, and countless other passages. And then finally, whoever sins shall die. On the day you eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve, you will surely die. But through the triumphant resurrection where Christ defeated death, we too will be raised imperishable to live with God forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter 1 and 2. Christ has provided everything that you need. He has atoned for every sin. He has paid for every failing. And His righteousness is counted to you. His resurrection will be yours simply by faith. Trust in Christ. Our character can never be the ground of our peace before God in any way. When it comes to peace before God, it could never come from our disciplines or our efforts because when it comes to peace before God, only Christ will do. Horatius Bonar, whose hymns we often sing here at CBC, wrote a, a work called God's Way of Peace. I would commend it to you. God's Way of Peace. And in that book, he writes of a man trying to find peace before God. It goes this way. I knew an awakened soul who in the bitterness of his spirit thus set himself to work and pray in order to get peace. He doubled the amount of his devotions, saying to himself, surely God will give me peace. But the peace did not come. He set up family worship, saying, surely God will give me peace. But the peace came not. At last, he bethought himself of having a prayer meeting at his house as a certain remedy. He fixed the night, called his neighbors, and prepared himself for conducting the meeting by writing a prayer and learning it by heart. As he finished the operation of learning it, preparatory to the meeting, he threw it down on the table saying, surely that will do. God will give me peace now. In that moment, a still small voice seemed to speak in his ear saying, no, that will not do. But Christ will do. Straightway the scales fell from his eyes and the burden from his shoulders. Peace poured like a river. Christ will do was his watchword for life. Amen. Christ, his life, 
His cross, His triumph is our peace and our hope and our glory forever. Forever. Christ will most certainly do. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you as sinners seeing ourselves in the pages of your word. We are just like those who murdered your son. We are just like your people through history who rejected your prophets. We too are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. We too want all kinds of things that are contrary to what's good and contrary to what you have told us is good. So Father, we pray simply that you would have mercy on us for the sake of your Son. We pray that you would forgive us for our trespasses and our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And like the tax collector in the parable that Jesus told, we are sinners who ought not even lift our eyes to heaven, but ought to cry for mercy. We pray that you would remind us of our desperate need for Christ. We pray that as we prepare to come to the table, that we would not be overly anxious in our consciences, that we would concern ourselves with the only fitness that you require, and that is to feel our need of Jesus. So come now and Minister to us through the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've lost my mic. I'm going to go here. Everybody hear me okay? Great.